0: Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit BrainwashCoffeeCo.com and use promo code recovery Survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles.
1: You've been so committed to a lifestyle of criminality and addiction that you are gonna have to take a stand. He's like, you're like the little kid that if here's the bed, you keep get sleeping on the edge and then falling out in the middle of the night and wondering why you fall out. You need to be all the way up against the wall. You cannot ride this line. You need to take a stand in the community and in your recovery and pick a side. You've got to pick a side.
0: My guest today is named Janine Coulter Lindgren, and she's a fellow recovery podcaster. She has a show called Chasing Heroin. She is also a Pilates and spin instructor. Welcome to the show, Janine.
1: My name's Janine, and I'm an alcoholic addict in recovery. Thank you so much for having me on. My sobriety date is January 15th, 2015. So God willing, in a few months, I'll have seven years which is crazy. I also own a fitness studio in San Diego. I own a spin and Pilates studio and I'm an addict in recovery. So I also have a recovery podcast called chasing heroin, heroin with an E. So those are kind of the, the things that I do uh, job wise.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show today. Thank you. If you wouldn't mind, maybe we could uh, start with your story and, and go from there.
1: Sure. So I'm originally from Georgia And I, and sometimes I include this, sometimes I don't. It's just kind of like whether or not it comes up or not. There was absolutely nothing in my background at all that would suggest that I would become somebody that was a drug addict, nothing like a great family family you know, nice area that I was raised in, anything I could ever want. You know, I got a great education. In fact, I was very, 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 and this matters later, I was super academically committed and academically oriented. My my high school was really academically advanced and I did very well in school. I took all like the AP classes. My senior year of high school, I took five AP classes and did really well in my SATs and Got in early to a fancy college in Washington, D.C. I knew midway through my senior year where I was going to go, like all of that stuff. And I was a pretty good kid. I smoked cigarettes a little bit here and there, but not really. Didn't drink much. was pretty well-behaved. And my senior year of high school, my parents split up and I lost my mind. I lost my mind and kind of held it together that year didn't sink immediately into the throes of alcoholism or addiction or anything kind of held it together. My behavior maybe started changing a little bit, my appearance and things, but other than that, you know, it wasn't super noticeable, but I was kind of falling apart on the inside. I was completely falling apart. And looking back, I think I had a nervous breakdown that lasted like a year and a half, you know? Um, so I went to that fancy college in DC and I just couldn't make it work. I was brokenhearted about my parents. So I left the school, I went back to Georgia. I went to the university of Georgia briefly and I couldn't do that either. I was just, I was just like broken. And so after a few years at university of Georgia, half going to school, half not going to school. And my addiction kind of started then with some food stuff and an addiction to working out and losing weight. And and that was really where it started for me. There was a little bit of drinking going on at then, but, but not much. And I decided, and looking back, this was like, one of my first kind of like addict moves was this decision that I made. I decided that it would be easier to be an Oscar winning Emmy award winning actress rather than go to class and finish college. I thought that that would legitimately like be easier. And I was like, I know what I need to do. I'm going to leave college, move to LA and become famous because I don't, and and really what was going on was it was a little bit, my parents of course, but I also definitely had that thing in me where you know, i i did I didn't really want to work that hard at that point in my life. You know, high school had been uh, college is harder than high school, right? And high school was a little bit easier for me. I mean, I worked, but once I got to college, you know, the stakes got up, and I wasn't really prepared to like do that grind and work that hard and. I've always been, especially back then, the epitome of like the rules don't apply to me as an addict. And even little things like going to, so the, at the University of Georgia, you drive to a parking garage and then a bus would take you to your building. And like, I didn't want to do any of that. I would park in like the handicapped spot or I'd be late and I'd park like up on a curb. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to follow the rules, especially if they inconvenienced me in some way. And going to class really inconvenienced me a lot. So I quit school but I spent another year in Athens which is where the University of Georgia is to kind of save money and I did start bartending I was 21 started bartending started doing a little bit of coke there not extreme right but a little bit never paid for it it's actually kind of funny like in Georgia and I don't know if it's like this anywhere else but it's like or it was it was like a the gentleman thing to do was to pay for the girl's coke <laughs> know if they still do that but when I was there the guys would be like oh you you know put your money away you know what I mean like put your money away put your wallet away I got this and of course I was like fine you know I had more of an accent back then so the boys bought the coke and you know it wasn't terrible but I was doing it and left Athens moved to California and brought those ideas with me though right that idea that i didn't really want to i didn't want to play by the rules and i didn't want to put the work in and so i i showed up and you know i got some headshots taken and i like tried to do the things but i wasn't really prepared in my life to work that hard i wanted things to come to me much much easier and i was always very focused on you know the things that i didn't have and and the things that i had lost and the sadness that i had around my family and And I can look back now and see that I was not set up for any real success, but at the time I didn't, you know, I didn't know that and moving to LA over the next eight years, I picked up the Coke habit again, got bad, not as bad as things got for me later, but it wasn't, I was losing things. My, you know, the boyfriends I had were always upset with me. I was broke all the time. My and eventually what happened was I had a car. My car died. So I lived in LA for like eight years. My car died, the head gas blew blue while I was driving it, which has happened to me on multiple cars because I don't change the oil or didn't used to, I do know. And I was buying Coke and not changing the oil in the car. So all the head gaskets blue. I'm 28 years old. And the boyfriend that I lived with at the time kicked me out of the house. And I ended up having to leave LA and move down to San Diego, which is where my mom lives. And Once I got to San Diego is where everything really kind of escalated for me. And what I did was, which was brilliant, was I'm the only person I know of. I'm sure there are other people out there. I picked up a heroin habit at the age of 30 years old, began doing heroin at 30. And along the line here too, I started in LA. I got certified to teach fitness. So I was teaching spin, and doing coke in LA. And then when I moved down to San Diego, I got jobs teaching spin. And I would be, as my addiction progressed, I would be like smoking meth in the parking lot of these like really nice places. And then going in and teaching spin and teaching bar and teaching the things that I teach. And I got strung out on heroin. I met a guy who had been a Marine and he'd been overseas in Afghanistan multiple times, come back with a traumatic brain injury, was injured and they prescribed him Oxycontin and he developed a habit over time, unbeknownst to me, ended up on heroin. I ended up doing it with him and 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 then I got strung out. And in 10 months, I was homeless and had lost everything and learned what real drug addict bad is, right? Because like, I would think all the time about how when I was doing coke, but I still had a job and it wasn't that bad. And like, I could figure this out too. So I launched into a period of five years, the last five years of my using. I was homeless or in a program and I didn't go to nice programs. I went to parole funded, county funded programs, or I was in jail. So that was how I spent those five years was, was in and out of programs and in and out of jail. And during that time, I also continued to, I was getting arrested and the charges were getting more serious. My Last arrest was for strong-arm robbery, and they were going to give me a strike in the state of California and send me to prison, and all of the stakes had greatly increased. And the way that that five-year period kind of finally ended for me is – because what I would do is I would go to a program. I could get 90 days. The most I'd ever gotten was 94 days during this time. And I'd gone to a program. This is actually when I got the 94 days relapse got kicked out and I was living in a sober living. And my thing was what I would do is I would live in your sober living, but I would totally use and relapse and I can pass a drug test pretty easily. And I used to actually share how I did that, but then people would listen to me talk and like start doing the technique and passing drug tests. I don't share it anymore, but I can pass a drug test like pretty easily. And I'm like prepared and I'm ready to pass a drug test. So I was living at this sober living. And I was fully strung out on heroin. I had relapsed. It was obvious. I did, I was the only girl in the house without a job. I think I hadn't even paid rent yet. I'd lost all this money. I was strung out, but I was like pretending I had a job and all this other stuff. So it was New Year's Eve, 2014, and I had a friend that I had used to use with actually, and 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 he'd gotten busted in a raid, had gone to prison for a few years, got clean in prison, got out, and was clean. It was just like kind of trying to help me, and we would connect here and there over the years. And he and I were going out to dinner for New Year's Eve. So we went out to dinner. And while I was out, the owner of that sober living called me and she was like, Hey, Janine, so there's some heroin here in the bathroom and we know it's yours and you can't come back to the sober living. And, you know, I always say this, I feel like, addicts in recovery were all like part-time, like criminal defense lawyers. And I was like, that's circumstantial evidence, man. You don't know that's mine. Like eight other women live there that are drug addicts. Like it could be one of theirs. Meanwhile, I'm thinking like, did I leave heroin like on the bathroom counter? That's so crazy. Like I need that. How did I leave that behind? And, and I had passed the, a urine test that morning. And I said that I was like, I passed a piss test for you this morning. You don't know that was mine. And she said, you know what, Janine, you're right. You passed a drug test this morning. But I'm pretty sure that this is yours and all the girls are here and we're all pretty sure that this is yours. You're the one that's not here and you've been, you know, displaying this kind of behavior and we're pretty sure that this is yours. But I tell you what, if you can bring me a blood test that says that you're clean, I'll support you and you can move back into the house. And no one had ever asked me for a blood test before that had never happened. But to her on the phone, I was like, fine, I can do that. I'll get a blood test. So we hang up and I didn't even have a, I had a flip phone. So in California, they give you a phone when you get out of jail. They used to give you a phone. We called it the Obama phone. I don't even know if they still do it. Get out of jail. They give you a phone so you can at least try to get a job is the idea. So I had my flip phone, my welfare phone. And I said to my friend, I was like, give me your phone. I need to Google Google the hospital logo i need to forge this document i need to make a blood test help me look this up we're going to go to kinko's i'm going to make this document i'm just going to look and see what it looks like i'm sure i can make it up and by this time we'd gone and he'd gotten a hotel room because i'd gotten kicked out so we're sitting there talking or i couldn't go back that night at least so we're sitting there talking in the room and my friend he'd always really kind of like backed me up no matter what i was saying for years, like no matter what kind of crazy bullshit I was saying, my buddy was like, yeah, okay, Janine, you know, and I don't know how he felt internally, but he was always like, sure. What do you need? Cigarettes. You need a ride. Okay, fine. You know, he wanted me to do better, but like he supported me and I was going on and on and on. And I remember I stopped and I looked at him and he, he was just sitting there not supporting me and not saying anything. And, and, and his face was kind of like, you know, like, what are you doing? was the vibe I was getting. And I remember I stopped and I and I said, okay, come on, don't look at me like that. I don't want to do this. I don't want to forge a blood test. She's making me forge a blood test. I don't want to do that. But what am I supposed to do? I'm going to kick on the streets because when you kick heroin, you get really, really sick for weeks at a time. And that was always like the struggle and is the struggle of most heroin and fentanyl addicts. We can't kick Outside, I mean, we can, but you're going to be really vulnerable, and you're going to be sick for weeks. And so it's like the constant opiate addict struggle to find a detox where you can safely either kick with nothing or get a hold of some some, some suboxone. It's a whole. That's why I'm involved in. The fellowship that I'm involved in, which is heroin anonymous, where we can talk about like harm reduction, methadone, you know, all that kind of stuff. But like, this is the primary problem. I don't know what your drug of choice is, but that was. But this is the primary problem for an opiate addict. Where do I kick? How do I kick? Where do I get sick? And that was always my struggle for all those years. Where Where do I go kick? I want to. Where do I go? And so I remember saying to him, "I was like, what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to kick on the streets. Like I can't do that. She's making me forge this blood test." What else am I supposed to do? And I remember he just kind of stopped and he said, I mean, you could get clean. And I, I just kind of like stopped in that moment and I kind of stopped my bullshit for a second. And I thought, God, I guess I could do that. I guess I could do that. Right. Like, and I had obviously heard stuff like that before, you know, obviously, but for some reason in that moment, because I because I remember it, right? I thought, man, I am, I am doing so much here to try to hold on to this thing that is destroying me with these you know, my machinations and my plans and you know, sleep, you know, the, the things I do to stay prepped for a drug test are uncomfortable. And, you know, I am working really hard to hold on to this thing, you know, like I guess I could get clean, but I wasn't ready in that moment. And I had I had a Suboxone on me because my plan was always to kick. Uh, what ended up happening, though, is that I didn't ever actually pull the trigger on kicking. So uh, my Suboxone would just end up being a charge when I got arrested, an extra possession charge. But I always had like a little kick kit with some benzos and some Suboxone. And it was always my plan to kick as soon as I got to a space where I could, as soon as I could just land on a couch and, you know, I, I'd kick there. So I had a Suboxone in a cigarette cellophane with me. And I, but I wasn't ready to kick that night. So I spent the night in the hotel room and the next day my buddy was like, all right, what do you want to do? And I, and I wasn't ready yet. And so I called a heroin connection of mine and, and he's like, oh, what are you doing? You know, happy new year, <laughs> whatever. And I was like, yeah, totally happy new year. I don't know what I'm going to do. I can't go back to my sober living because I got kicked out. And my buddy, my connect said, I know what you can do. You can stay. I got a place you can stay. You can stay in the dog house in my backyard if you want. And I said, great, seriously, can I do that? And he was like, totally, I don't care. You can stay in the doghouse." And I was like, awesome. Thank you. I'll be right there. And my buddy did not want to bring me to the dog house, but he did. And so he dropped me off in this little alley in this area of San Diego where people are mostly just using drugs. And it was actually, it was like a little short, one of those like portable sheds that gets like dropped off. And he had the door open and there was like a dog mat on the ground and his dog could go in and out. And he let his dog sleep inside for a few nights and let me stay in the doghouse. And I stayed in that doghouse for three nights and using, and using the, there was a donut shop down the street if I needed to use the restroom, which again, I don't know, your drug of choice is rare when you are on heroin. <laughs> so on the occasion that I needed to use the restroom, I would go to this donut shop and I stay there for three nights. And The third morning, so I have another, being San Diego there, you know, there's the Marine base out here and I have another friend, a Marine who'd been in Afghanistan multiple times. It's actually how I met the ex that I was doing heroin with. Uh, He called me on the third day or the, the second night actually. And said, Hey, what are you doing? And he happened to be back from Afghanistan and he was stationed in 29 Palms briefly. And he would call me whenever he was back. And again, he's another one of my friends who was like, Janine, oh my God, get your shit together. Like he'd come visit me in rehab when he happened to be in the States and, you know, just was always kind of like pulling for me, not an addict also. Called me the second night, what are you doing? And I said, I am <laughs> living in a doghouse in Oceanside and I think I'm going to die. And I think I'm gonna die. And he said, "Okay, like that's it. If if I come get you tomorrow morning, will you be there? Can I come get you?" And I was like, "Yes, I will be there. I will be there. I'll be there." So the next day, he came and I walked to a Burger King nearby, and I met him at a Burger King. And I actually called my mom. Actually, lives here. I called my mom. She stopped by. She was on her way to church, and I wanted five bucks for cigarettes. And my mother would not give me five bucks. And I include this because if you have any family members that are listening, don't give them five bucks (laughs) because you might have a different speaker right now. If she'd given me that money, you know, I asked her for five bucks, which she would not give me. And I remember I even hassled her about it. I was like, oh, he's coming all this way. Now he's also going to have to buy me cigarettes. Like I just want a pack of cigarettes. And she said, no, but she brought me a cliff bar and some vitamin C tablets that she wanted me to take. And I was like, fine. So I like ate the Bar and ate the tablets, and she left me at the Burger King. And my buddy showed up, picked me up, drove me all the way out to 29 Palms, and I actually brought a little dope with me. Lasted a few days. Ran out. And ate my one Suboxone. And that was it. And, uh, and I kicked heroin for the last time. And that was in January of 2015. So I drank for another 10 days. So the last time I did heroin was actually January 5th. But my sobriety date is January 15th because I drank to get through the kick, uh, which is not something that they would obviously have you do in a program or in a hospital setting. But I was not detoxing in hospitals or in programs. You know, I'm just puking on a couch. And I binged uh, Game of Thrones, which I had never heard of. It's 2015. And I was like, are you serious? You've never heard of the show? It's huge. And it was on season four. So I watched up all four seasons of Game of Thrones and subsequently became a massive Game of Thrones nerd, read all the books when I came back and was taking the bus, watched Game of Thrones, smoked cigarettes, ate food, whatever, and kicked. While I was out there, I had no idea where I was going to go when I came back. And I had been kicked out of every sober living in the area for living in your sober living, relapsing and using. And there was one, the guy that said, well, you could just get clean. He lived in one that I had been kicked out of before twice for selling heroin out of the sober living. He'd already kicked me out twice in my lifetime, but my buddy went to bat for me. And and the owner of that sober living also really liked me because when I did well, I would do well, you know, and people saw that. So Somehow he decided to let me come back just on a couch just to see how I would do because it was not, I wouldn't have put my money on me and neither would he, that I was actually going to, you know, stay clean this time. So I came back to town and the first thing I did was start, I started working and and this is why this matters. So throughout this time, I I do have a skill set, right? I teach fitness. I teach spin and I teach bar and all those bar is like a form of ballet kind of workout. So I came back and I got on Craigslist and I found a job at a studio about an hour by bus or an hour and a half by bus from where I was, went and auditioned, got the job. First class I taught there. I had 19 days clean off of heroin. I was living in clothes that had been donated to the sober living. I had never heard of Spotify. I had never heard of Instagram. I had an old, Um, iPod, the little ones. It was actually my mom's and I didn't know any music past 2010. So all my playlists stopped in 2010. I had no idea what was current, but I got the gig and I actually now own that studio. That's the studio that I own at four years clean. I bought it from the people that auditioned me that day. And um, I own that studio now. And that's not The days that I was taking the bus there and back, and I was embarrassed for any of the clients because it's in an affluent area. I was very embarrassed for them to see me getting off the bus. Those days, you know, they did not last. I, I, you know, I own it now. But I always like to include this part, too. As soon as I got back, I did all the things that we're supposed to do in 12-step. I'm 12-step based. I already had a sponsor and I like to share this because I relapsed a lot. I don't like the word chronic relapser, but I was in fact, a chronic relapser. We all know what I mean when I say that, but the benefit to being a chronic relapser, I am so embarrassed about that is every time that you come in, You're learning, you're, you're gaining actually information and you're gaining tools for when you're finally ready to leverage, to, to leverage, uh, to execute on that information. When you're ready to execute on that information, you've been gathering those tools. And so I already had a sponsor. I knew where all the meetings were that I could walk to. And I started doing that stuff right away immediately, right? Like got back on my step one timeline that I've done a million times because I've relapsed so many times that I immediately got going, doing that. The one thing I did that was different that I also share is that I took on a commitment. There was a meeting there at the Sober Living that I could just walk to because I didn't have a car. And I did take on that commitment. And slowly what happens is we all know that we're supposed to take on a commitment. We all hear people say this in meetings. But I've learned a little bit more about it from my own experience and then also kind of like reading and researching. And and what what happens in your brain neurologically in a very real way is that when you start doing things that are the things that somebody in recovery does your brain starts to believe that you're a person in recovery and starts like looking for it starts looking for evidence to make the case that you're a person in recovery versus I'm a person that relapses which is why I recommend standing up taking your time doing step work calling once you start doing those things your your entire the the way that you look at yourself and your belief systems shift from chronic loser relapser lived in a doghouse to oh I'm like a person in recovery now, you know? And so like doing those actionable things are really important, but I always kind of try to share something a little bit different too. I had three main shifts that I like to share three main mindset shifts because I always did steps. I always called my sponsor. I always went to meetings. I did all that stuff every time. Like I really did. And I'm kind of a nerd. So I really liked reading the book. Like I liked reading the book. I, I, I got into the literature and I would relapse anyways. So what was different this time? And three things kind of happened for me internally that led to some action. One of them was I'd just gotten back and I was also, I was using, I was trying to get sober in the areas that I had used in because that's what happens when you go to the free programs, they're in the neighborhood you used in, right? When you're at the parole place, it's where you used And that in and of itself is its own kind of like jungle of mess, but it's unavoidable in a lot of, in a lot of cases. And it was absolutely unavoidable in mine. That's just where the, that's where the funded programs are. So that's where I was. And I was at McDonald's and I saw a guy that I used to use with. And I had like, I don't know, two, you know, I'd just gotten back from being at my friend's house. I'd just gotten back from kicking. I was still sick. And I saw a friend of mine and he was like, Hey. I've shot for you, like in the bathroom. He must've been feeling happy that day because he was not something that normally gave way to But he was like, I got a shot for you if you want it. I got a new rig, everything. Like, come on, get your ass back in here. And I remember thinking, like, I, I didn't want to be rude. <laughs> I was like, okay, thanks. Hold on, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be right back. I'll be right back. But I was also really scared and I didn't want to use. And I literally ran up the hill to my sober living and I saw the manager of the sober living outside and I stopped him. And normally I would not have said anything about that, but I was trying to do things a little bit differently. So I grabbed him and I told him what happened. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to tell this guy what happened. So I told him what was going on. And I was like, but I'm really struggling with not going back. Like that was free heroin, you know, like who gives up free heroin? And I remember the manager was like, what, that shit isn't free that isn't fucking free. What has that cost you in your lifetime? That's actually the worst return on investment I've ever seen a person make is shoot heroin. That's not free. And I thought, yeah, you're right. You're right. Okay. It's not free. Fine. It's not free. You're right. I didn't do it because he and I argued all the time. Fine. So I went upstairs to my little apartment And he came back up like five minutes later and he was like, I'm not done with you. And I remember thinking, of course, you're not done with me. And he kind of started like yelling at me a little bit more. And I stopped him and he was a former crack addict. And I was like, you know what, Steve, stop. Let me ask you this. I was like, if you, if somebody just offered you free crack, you would pause for a moment. Wouldn't it be a little bit of a struggle? And before I even finished, he cut me off. And he was like, no, 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 that would never happen to me. That would never happen to me because I've taken a stand in this community and people know who I am. And that would never happen to me. And he said, you have been such a committed, you've been so committed to a lifestyle of criminality and addiction that you are going to have to take a stand. He's like, you're like the little kid that if here's the bed, you keep get sleeping on the edge and then falling out in the middle of the night and wondering why you fall out. You need to be all the way up against the wall. You cannot ride this line. You need to take a stand in the community and in your recovery. You need to take a stand and pick a side. You've got to pick a side. He walked out. And I heard that, you know, I heard that. And so, what that looked like in terms of action for me was I decided to become a person even like at the sober living. Cause I was always the person that like, if you relapsed, you could come tell me and I'd be like, Oh shit, what are you going to do? Like, here's my trick for passing a drug test. You know, like I was like that person in the rehab and I was like, I need to become the person that other people are like, well, don't tell Janine cause she'll fucking tell on you. Like, I need to be that person, you know, like I need to be the person in the house that you don't want to know if something went, happen- went wrong. And then I also, and I had never done this before and it physically hurt me to do it. I went through and I deleted all of my contacts of people that were using and Facebook even deleted and blocked in case I changed my mind. (laughs) Couldn't even like find them anymore. Ideally. I hadn't heard of Instagram yet, so I wasn't on Instagram. That was not a problem, but deleted all of my contacts. And what I always share here is that one of the things that rehab counselors say that I hate, that I don't like, they'll talk about your old using buddies. And they're like, those people aren't your buddies. They want you to die. You know, like they're not your friends. And that's not true. Like some of those people were my friends, but the choices that they're making no longer align with my life goals. And that's just how it is, you know? And so for the first time, I was able to like turn that into action and make that decision. Second mindset shift was like 90 days and it was my birthday. And I was turning 35 and I was... so. Also, when I came back in, I had no ID. I had no, certainly no driver's license. Like my mom even was like, okay, well, maybe, maybe I can go to social security and swear an affidavit that I physically gave birth to you in Orlando, Florida on this date. And like, there was no way to even prove that it was me. You know, we had to go all the way back and get my birth certificate, start building from the ground up. And I was turning 35. And I lived on a couch in a sober living with no. I didn't even have a bank account, right? I had to go to check cash places. You know nothing, and I was really, really, really bummed out that day. And all I could think about was was what I had lost, you know, and what everybody was saying to me that day. And you know how this goes. Everybody that I talked to was like. Yeah, but you're clean though, man. And that's what matters, man. Like you're clean today. And I'm like, yeah, but that's not really doing it for me right now because we're not supposed to do heroin in the first place. So celebrating that I'm off of heroin at 35 is like not really working for me because if you could have gone back and found me, like if the ghost of Christmas future had floated into my high school in 1998 and stopped me walking down the high school, walking down the hallway, and was like, Hey, Janine, I have a crystal ball here for you. Do you want to see where you're going to be at 35 years old? 18-year-old me would have been like, yeah, show me. I'm going to have a great life, I'm sure. I'm sure I'm going to be famous. Like, I don't know for what, but I'm definitely going to be famous. Definitely rich, probably married, living in a mansion. Definitely show me. And if the ghost of Christmas future was like, yeah, so none of that shit's going to happen. But what you will have going for you is that you will be 90 days off of heroin that day, which for you at that point will be a massive achievement. I would have been like... I mean, seriously, you're in the wrong, like, this is the AP side of the high school. Like here, uh, this is the wrong person. This is not, that cannot be my life. And I was very much stuck in that, in that um, mindset that day. Now I was doing a little meditation series at the time and I went outside and the meditation series was a gratitude meditation series. It was a free 21 day meditation series at Oprah and Deepak Chopra. They used to do them. I don't think they do them anymore, but they were doing them at the time and it was free. And I stepped outside to do it. And the quote that day was a quote from an author named Melody Beattie. I think she I think the book's Codependent No More is the book that she wrote. But the quote was gratitude unlocks the fullness of life and makes what we have enough. That was the quote. And we've all heard gratitude, it's like a cliche. It's like when someone has 30 days and they pick a topic at a meeting and they're like gratitude. Like it's the thing that it's so cliche, but which is how I always felt about it. But in this moment, so I did the, I did the meditation. I was outside on the deck of our sober living, crappy, sober living, crappy neighborhood. I'm smoking other people's butts out of the ashtrays because I had no money smoking other people's cigarettes doing this meditation. It's like 20 minutes and I did it. And When I was done, I opened my eyes and I looked out on the view from my deck and there were like mountains out in front of me and there was actually like this beautiful view and I realized, okay, in that moment I kind of realized that that didn't just get there, right? That view has always been there. How am I only just now seeing this, you know, now? And then I realized, so what was happening was what I was able to get grateful for was that I wasn't dope sick because being dope sick is one of the worst feelings of pain ever. And I wasn't dope sick in that moment. And I realized that I didn't have to get well. I didn't have to find 20 bucks to get well before I could breathe, you know, or like find a vein. And the way that that was kind of manifesting for me was in my ability to like, see this feel, you know, and all of a sudden it was like the color of the world changed and I wasn't dope sick and I could see all these beautiful things. And I realized, wait a minute, this was always here, but I couldn't see it even before I was using, did my heroin addiction actually make me like more grateful for my life? Like, am I, is there a positive that came out of this? What, like. And what I was feeling and I learned this later was, and this is something I try to talk about a lot too, when I get the opportunity to speak is, so there's, everybody's heard of post-traumatic stress disorder and men and women, when they go overseas to fight, they tell them, okay, you're going to come back one of two ways. You're going to come back status quo, the way that you are now, or you're going to come back fucked up and we want status quo. We just want to keep you from damage, right? That That's the goal here as best we can. But there's actually a third way back from trauma. And this is not my theory. This is a studied psychological effect, which is post-traumatic growth. And you can actually come back from a trauma stronger and better than you were before for a variety of reasons. One, like the one I just described, you tend to have a little bit more gratitude for something that's been right in front of you all along. Your relationships tend to get a little bit stronger. You value people a little bit more. And then often you choose to walk some sort of spiritual path that maybe you weren't going to walk before. And there's all this evidence to support the idea that after a trauma, we can actually have enhanced lives. And in that moment, I was catching a glimpse of that. I Like just around the edges, I was thinking, oh my God, did something actually like positive happened here that changed. And when I read a book later about post-traumatic growth, like a year or so so later, I was like, holy, sh- that's what this is. That's what all of this is. And if I get really, if I get really honest, all of that, it wasn't that bad doing Coke. It wasn't that bad. That's bullshit. It was horrible. It was horrible. Like, and, and I had a, uh, I had a boyfriend put it the best way before i left la the boyfriend that kicked me out the last time we were having an argument and and it's so ironic everything that i said to him but we were arguing about coke and he was mad at me and i remember going i was like you know what man you are like really overreacting here it's a little bit of coke it's not like i'm shooting heroin <laughs> i've never been arrested you know i still have a job we still live here i have my car like you know it's fine everything is fine and i remember he just kind of stopped and he said, you know what Janine, You're right. None of that stuff has happened. None of that stuff has happened. And you're smart enough and you're slick enough that you could probably go the rest of your life without any of that stuff happening. But you're sick three days out of seven. You're always about to get fired. It's always a little bit weird with your family because they know that something's wrong, but you're not honest about it. You're always broke, but worst of all, you'll have to live your life knowing you're not the person you were supposed to be but you're right. You could do that. And that's what was actually happening with those years that I was doing Coke. And they kept recording in my brain later as not that bad, not that bad, not that bad, but it's not about the external consequences. It's about the internal consequences and the life that we could have and the person that we could be. And that was the final shift in my paddle with heroin After I realized what I was starting to kind of see at the edges with post-traumatic growth was heroin brought me to my fucking knees and left me with no choice because that guy was right. I could have drank a little too much and done coke a little too much for the rest of my life and told everybody, I'm fine. I have a job. Like I have a part-time job doing coke. I'm fine, but not ever actually like living to my full potential or giving back in any real way. Because again, if I get really honest, the girl in high school was not nearly as happy as I am right here sitting with you. All I ever thought about was all the things I didn't have. And the years in LA that weren't that bad were awful. I was in the middle of a dream that I couldn't get. I was brokenhearted about a divorce that wasn't even mine from when I was a kid. And I just kept thinking the future would somehow be better if I, didn't, if I didn't mess it up now. And that was the state that I lived in. I lived in a state of perilous anxiety and fear every day. That was it. That was my state. That was my state of being. And heroin took all of that away from me and brought me to the program of 12-step recovery. And the design for living that is the 12 steps changed my life. And I wouldn't have done that. I would have just part done, you know, part-time done coke the rest of my life. So what finally shifted for me was I became very, very, very grateful for what heroin had done in my life. And that allowed me to release a lot of the shame of what I had done, you know, was because I I wouldn't, I wouldn't change any of that stuff now, you know, because it completely changed my life actually for the better, which is why like All of my stuff is called chasing heroin, heroin with an E, because in chasing all of that heroin, I actually found the heroin that was inside of me that would not have actually come out. And so I'm able to rest easy in the choices that I made based on what they brought to my life. And I met my husband at a 12 step meeting and in no other world do his name is Skylar and in no other world do Skylar and I meet. We're different ages. I'm seven years older than him. <laughs> We're from different coasts, uh, completely different backgrounds. We have different like educational interests. We would not have met in college, like in no other world do he and I meet except for in the 12 step world where he and I both lost everything and ended up at this meeting. Like, it's just brought so much beauty into my life. And if I could leave your audience with with anything, like that's what I really try to impart to people. The thing that we think could be such such a loss and that we've given up so much for can actually, the things that we've learned can give us an edge that can really leverage us into higher levels of success because I wasn't built for that grind. Like when I went to college, I wasn't built for that grind, man. I wasn't willing to put that work in. And when I lived in LA, I wasn't built for that grind. But after heroin took everything from me, I had no choice but to grind that newcomer grind where you don't have a car and you can't even afford your own cigarettes, like all that stuff that's going on with you at 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, that grind prepares us to be the hardest working person in the room and we can be the best employee anybody's ever had. And you can end up rising to the top. That's how I own the studio. I was the best instructor there. And I was able to, the clients ended up loving me. And over time, it was just sort of the natural order of things that the owners kind of stepped back. And they're like, you're kind of in charge here. Do you want to make it official? I was like, yeah, fine. I'll do that. You know, and it just has brought nothing but beauty into my life. And I would not have thought that a few years ago. I never would have
0: thought that. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing your story, Janine. That was absolutely incredible. And we're kind of getting towards the end of the episode. So I'd love to give you an opportunity once again to, uh, to share with the audience the name of your podcast, where they can find you on social media. Just let us know um, if we want to hear more from you, where we can do that.
1: If you want to hear more than I already just talked your ear off. Yes, absolutely. I'll give your, your audience the, the, the opportunity to do that. So I have a podcast also called Chasing Heroin on this day where either myself or another addict share a pivotal story from our addiction and um, again because my whole my whole messaging is that the positives that came out of even some of the darkest moments so a guest shares a story that can seem dark or inappropriately funny or whatever you know addict stuff addict shit and then we talk about what we learned from it so my podcast is called Chasing Heroin it's on Spotify Apple all the places and then Chasing Heroin is my name across the social media platforms that I'm on so Uh, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube is where you can find me under Chasing Heroin. And my fitness studio, if anybody's interested, is in San Diego. On uh, Instagram, it's called Studio Cybrid. We do cycle hybrid classes. So C-Y-B-R-I-D if anybody's interested. But Chasing Heroin, Heroin with an E is my handle across the platforms.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming on the show. I really, really do appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Brett. You're doing good work. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: Janine thank you again for coming on the show today your story was very powerful and I know it's going to help a lot of people guys be sure to check out her podcast chasing heroin with an e the link for her podcast as well as her social media will be in the show notes you've been listening to recovery survey if you got anything out of today's episode I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.